Welcome to True Vine Church Community's Sermon of the Week. Our hope is that this message would spark and sustain revival in your relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information about this podcast and other ways to connect with True Vine, visit us at blessphiladelphia.com. Thanks for joining us this morning. Uh, I'm going to let the kids go downstairs for Children's Church if they would like to do that. Unless they want to stay up here. None of them. None of them want to stay up here. That's fine. How are we doing? Okay. Good. That's, we're getting there. We're getting there. <clears throat> we're going to be in John, the uh, first couple chapters, John 2 through 6 this morning. If you have a Bible, whether it's a paper Bible or an electronic Bible, you can go to John chapter 2. That's where we're going to start. Um, while you're doing that, let me pray for us, all right? Jesus, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for giving us your people. Thank you for giving us your spirit. You've just provided everything we need for life and godliness. There's just nothing you left to be desired uh, other than you yourself. And so, Jesus, we want to take full advantage of everything you've provided for us this morning and get everything that you have for us from your word I pray that your Holy Spirit would teach us through Scripture. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, uh, I was listening to the radio this week, and they referenced that this week was the 41st anniversary of a miraculous event called the Miracle on Ice. This is when the United States Olympic hockey team defeated the Soviets in, I think it was like the semifinal round. It wasn't even the finals of the Olympics. Then we went on to beat maybe Sweden or Finland or one of those Nordic countries. In the finals, no one ever really remembers the final. We remember that we beat the Soviets in 1980, and that's called the Miracle on Ice. It's not the only miraculous sporting event that we've experienced. Uh, Anyone familiar with the Miracle in the Meadowlands? Uh, this is like something that the Eagles do to the Giants on a regular basis. Uh, uh, the, some sort of like incredible turn of events on the last play of the game. This has happened multiple times when the Eagles play uh, the Giants at the Giants Stadium. So there's a miracle on the Meadowlands. There's the miracle on the Meadowlands two and three, I think. There's at least three times because the Giants are a really good organization, I guess. So I... I it's interesting when you listen to the radio because they talk about religion and they talk about spirituality, but often it's so evident that they have disdain, disinterest, or simply do not know what they're talking about. And anytime that spirituality gets incorporated into sports or other uh, politics, pop culture, music, it's just like, I don't know if we're using the words right. You know, so this morning I want to actually talk about miracles. And I say that word funny. I know I've been told my whole life that I have this, you know, miracle. I say miracle, like America. I, I, I say it, you know, mir- it's miracle, but I'm probably going to say miracle, like it's spelled M-A-R-A-C-L-E, but you understand what I'm saying. But I want to try to answer the question, what exactly is a miracle? Is a miracle an upset in sports? Is that a miracle? Is a miracle something that happens against the odds that's a long shot? Is that a miracle? Is a miracle a coincidence? Or is a miracle more than that? 
You know, let, you get a speeding ticket for $150.45, and then uh, the next day you get a rebate on your waterbed for $150.45. Is that a miracle or is that a coincidence? Oh, now I've, now I've trapped some of you. Because you would think that is a miracle, right? Okay. So I want to talk about the biblical understanding of a miracle. I want to start with three definitions, and then we're going to look at four stories in the Gospel of John. The first definition is from Nelson's New Illustrated Bible Dictionary, and it defines a miracle this way, historical events or natural phenomena that appear to violate natural laws. So every definition is going to build on the previous, so I want to explain this one really quickly. Historical events or natural phenomena that, and the key word is, that appear to violate natural laws. Okay, so I want to make it clear Human beings don't create natural laws. We discover natural laws. Okay? We didn't create gravity. We didn't invent gravity. We discovered gravity. We have not discovered all of the natural laws that exist. Okay? We're always discovering more and learning that what we thought was true 100 years ago wasn't true or quite, quite true the way we thought it was. And so we're always discovering. So it uses the word appear. A miracle is a historical event or a natural phenomena that appears to violate natural laws, but maybe we didn't understand the natural law quite right. Okay? The next definition is from the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology. It just kind of builds on that same idea. Belief in miracles lies at the heart of authentic Christian faith. A miracle is an event which runs counter to the observed process of nature, events which run counter to what is known of nature. So what we've observed of nature, you know, like we've observed of nature that when something is dead, it doesn't come back to life, except for when it does, right? Except for when Jesus was resurrected. And that's why this definition says belief in miracles lies at the heart of the authentic Christian faith. You can't be a Christian without believing in miracles, Okay, you might, you might have a question about whether they still happened, but you can't have a question about whether they ever happened and still be within the scope of Christianity because without miracles, you don't have the virgin birth, you don't have creation, you don't have the resurrection. I mean, you, you throw all of that stuff out and all you're left with is morality. Morality doesn't save. It actually takes a, another miracle, Jesus regenerating a dead heart, and bringing us to new life and being born again. So the third definition comes from J. Rodman Williams' Renewal Theology, Volume 1. This is my favorite systematic theology. And he says, an event manifesting divine activity that is other than the process of nature. Miracles, accordingly, are events that cannot be explained in terms of the usual working of nature. So all three of these definitions kind of have a, a similar vein here, is that a miracle is something that happens that there's not really a natural explanation for, that we don't have a natural explanation for. Maybe God has a natural explanation for, but we don't understand it. Our understanding of nature, our understanding of physics, our understanding of chemistry, biology, history, just can't explain it. There's a gap in our understanding between uh, what can happen and what did happen. So, miracles are not natural, but they are also not contrary to nature. They supersede nature. Okay, so they're not, they're, a miracle is not what happens in the natural flow of the day. A miracle is not against 
the natural laws. A miracle supersedes the natural laws or is supernatural. Understand? Miracles are super or supranatural. They're just above the natural laws. Okay? God is the lawmaker. God is the lawgiver, and he can do whatever he wants. And uh, when he performs a miracle, it is a supernatural uh, experience. Now, we're going to look in the Gospel of John this morning at a chunk of chapters, chapters 2, 3, 4, 5, 6. Actually, we'll just be in 2, 5, and 6 this morning. Because the Gospel of John takes a unique approach from the other Gospels in how it approaches the miraculous works of Jesus. John actually wrote at the end of his Gospel in uh, chapter 20, this is uh, the, right toward the end, he explains why he wrote his Gospel the way he wrote it. John 20, verses 30 through 31, this will not be up on the screen. It says, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. John's gospel does seem to have an emphasis on the miraculous, and he even uses a different word than miracle to describe these works. He calls them signs. So, the term signs, wonders, miracles are kind of synonymous in the Bible. John uses the term signs. When, what is a sign? A sign is something that directs your attention somewhere, right? Whether it's a sign, you know, Philadelphia 10 miles, or whether it's a sign that says bathroom that way, or whether it's a, you know, this sign or that sign, the sign is not the destination, right? The sign is either pointing you somewhere or it's a alerting you to something. If you roll into town and it says the name of the town, now you know where you are. The sign's really not all that special. If the sign falls down, is this town still there? Yes, right? The sign is just making you aware of something. So when John refers to these miraculous works as signs, he's indicating to us, hey, God's telling you something through this. He's either pointing you to Jesus or he's telling you Jesus is the Messiah, but the signs are letting you know. Sometimes miracles are called wonders, signs and wonders. A wonder has a slightly different purpose or has a slightly different effect than a sign in that a wonder provokes curiosity. Okay, so sometimes uh, Jesus will do these miraculous things like when he calms the storm at sea and the disciples are like, who is this? that even the wind and the waves obey him. That's, it provokes wonder. Who, it's a question. Who is this? Who is Jesus? Like what's go- they don't come to the conclusion, which is a sign helps you get to the conclusion. A wonder provokes the question. Does that make sense? So miracles can be signs and wonders. It's all kind of mishmashed together. I don't want to like chop it up too finely. But signs, wonders, and miracles, John has an emphasis on these in his gospel. We're going to look at four of them today. First, if you'll go to John chapter 2, we're going to look at Jesus turning water into wine. Do not get too excited. We're not going to do that today. All right. John chapter 2, I'm going to read verses uh, 1 through 11. And then we're going to talk about this a little bit. On the third day, or three days later, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Who's the mother of Jesus? Mary, right? Both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. 
Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. They're having a, a little bit of a disagreement. It's like, what's that? She says, We're out of, they're out of wine. He's like, what's it have to do with me? And she's like, whatever he says, do it. Okay. Again, Jesus is, has, is way more nuanced than we think he is. Now, there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So let's talk about this story really quickly. This is Jesus's first miracle. I mean, if you, aside from being born of a virgin, this is Jesus's first miracle. He turns water into wine. You know, Moses's first miracle was turning water into blood. So this, for the Jewish reader, might hearken back to Moses who turned water into blood and then later Jesus connects uh, drinking wine with his blood, taking his blood in communion. So Moses' first miracle was turning water into blood. Jesus does seem a little reluctant to act here, doesn't he? His mom says they're out of wine. He's like, what's that have to do with me? And she says, just do whatever he says to do and he listens to mom. Now, why is there a need? What's the big deal? Why is running out of wine create this situation? So they're at a wedding, and this cu culture valued hospitality highly. Weddings for them were not a one-day affair. It was a seven-day event. You took a whole week off to go to a wedding. You know, we kind of have, uh, even our weddings often will have multiple phases. There could be the rehearsal, the rehearsal dinner, the wedding, the reception. I mean, that's maybe two days and then the spouse, uh, the, the bride and groom go on a uh, honeymoon. So there's a little bit of a process here, but generally we think of a wedding as a one-day thing. For them, it was seven days of feasting. Imagine having to do the wedding reception seven days in a row. You go on the honeymoon and you come back and they're still there. So, Hosting people and feeding them was a very high value for them, and running out of food would have been really embarrassing. You know, we've had a couple meals here at the church where I'm like, I'm not sure we're going to have enough food, and I always get a little nervous, you know, especially when, like, Cozy's kids show up, you know? Like, I'm like, order two more pizzas. So... <laughs> You know, we don't want to ever run out of food at a meal because that's a little, it's a little embarrassing, right? So they're about to run out of drink and they don't have a ton of drink options. Again, in this culture, they don't have soda, they don't have Kool-Aid, they don't have Sunny D, they don't have all that stuff. They got water and wine. That's it. They got water and sometimes they didn't even have water because if the water wasn't clean, all they could drink is wine. And so you're drinking wine all the time. And if it sits there too long, remember, seven-day feast. What does wine do over time? Ferments. Gets more potent, right? The proof goes up. And so this is the situation that they're in. They're, they're in the middle of a seven-day feast. They're about to run out of drink, or they have, sorry, they have run out of drink. 
It's going to be really embarrassing for the bride and the groom if they're in this situation. So Jesus says, put some water in those pots. They're 20 or 30 gallons each. There's six of them. So we're talking roughly 150 gallons of water. And we don't know how. He doesn't even say anything. He doesn't say shabam or nothing like that. It just, they take it to the head waiter, like the, the, the host of the event. He tastes it and it's really good wine. You know, they used to, to make the wine last, they used to dilute it with water. They would let everybody drink straight wine up front. Once they were a little uh, tipsy, they would cut it with water, two parts water, one part wine. Basically grape juice. You know, they would water it down. But what is Jesus giving them? The real thing. And what he has made is better than what they've been drinking up to that point. So he turns the water into wine, and it says in verse 11 that this is the beginning of his signs, and he manifested his glory. Now, why did Jesus do this? Was anyone's life in danger here? There's no person that's sick or about to die. There's no demon involved. I mean, I, I found it really interesting this week that Jesus would go to this degree just to save someone's reputation. Just to, he was probably at the funeral, uh, probably at the wedding because he was friends with the people. I mean, this town is only 10 miles from where he grew up. He probably knew these people, which is why he's invited. He's, he's literally just preventing his friend from experiencing shame and dishonor. And they lived in a shame-honor culture. And so all he's doing is protecting his friend from being embarrassed. He's not saving a life. He's not casting out a demon. He's not raising the dead or anything like that. I think that that's interesting that Jesus is so compassionate. This is where I think his glory is manifested. Jesus is so compassionate that, hey, I'm going to help you out here and make sure that your reputation is preserved and that you're not embarrassed or shamed here. I'm going to provide you with honor by covering all of this beverage for your meal. Well, this caused the disciples, it says in verse 11, to believe in him or to put their trust in him. This was the first thing that they had seen that he had done that was miraculous, evidently, based on this passage. They hadn't seen him walk on water yet or heal a sick person or anything like that. It says that they believed in him. But as we read the rest of the story, we find that there's more believing to do. This is the initial believing event that the disciples have, but there's more believing and more believing and more believing to do. What they experienced here at the miracle at Canaan where he turns water into wine is not the, the full level of belief that they experience. It's the entry into belief. I also want to point out, because this is going to be a theme that pops up in every story we read today, that while Jesus provides the supernatural power and does the miraculous work, there are other participants in every story. I mean, who puts the water in the pots? The servants. Who tastes the water? The head waiter. Whose idea is it? His mother's. I mean, Jesus is the one that provides the power, but there are other participants in every story that we're going to look at today. And we are participants in the miraculous work of Jesus as it continues. Now, I don't want to allegorize this story too much and say that, you know, you, if you, everything you bring to Jesus, he'll turn water into wine. I mean, that is, can be true. This, this parable is really about Jesus' control and power over the natural laws, over the created world. I mean, does water normally turn into wine? It doesn't, right? I mean, unless it falls from the ground and is absorbed by a grapevine and grows into plump grapes and then goes through a process, but it doesn't normally just in a, in a pot or a barrel turn into wine, right? 
So this story is not necessarily a metaphor or an allegory of Jesus taking your little thing and making it great, although he does do that. This story is really about Jesus' power over the natural world. Just like when he calmed the storm on the sea. They didn't say, oh, Jesus will solve the storms of our lives. They said, who is this man that controls the wind and the waves? He controls the weather? That's what they said. So these miraculous stories go back to our original definition of the miraculous. This is Jesus intervening in the natural world in a supernatural way. He's, he's saying, I'm not limited to the laws. I, I, I'm supernaturally superseding the natural order. Now the next story is Jesus feeding the 5,000. If you'll go to John chapter 6, and similar thing here, if you know the story, he's going to take a little bit of food and make a lot of food. I love that, again, and, and I really I'm going to hammer this home next week, the personality and the character of Jesus. Jesus is making wine and holding fish fries. This is not the Jesus that you see in the movies, okay? He's, he's you know, making drinks and serving food. I like this about Jesus. In John chapter 6, starting in verse 2, this will be a familiar story to many of you. A large crowd followed him. Why? Because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test Philip, for Jesus himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered Jesus, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for them for everyone to receive a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are those for so many people? Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in this place, so the men sat down in number, about 5,000. Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated. Likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw this sign, which he had performed, they said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. So this story starts with a large crowd gathering because they've seen Jesus do signs. Here we go with the signs. They're, it's pointing to Jesus, and now they're following Jesus. It says that there were 5,000 men, because they only counted men at this time. So we don't know exactly how many people there, but assuming that many of those men had wives and many of those men had children, probably multiple children, it's not a stretch to say this is 10, 15,000 people possibly, which is far bigger than any of the towns in the area, uh, far bigger than some towns today, far bigger than my hometown. And so there's probably 10, 15,000 people, there's 5,000 men, they have nothing to eat except five loaves of bread and two fish. Not enough to feed a couple thousand people, right? I would hardly say that's enough to feed my family. It was, the person that was holding it was a little boy. You know, so it's adequate for him, probably. These loaves of bread are not big loaves. They're more like rolls or big biscuits. Uh, it says, 
uh, during Jesus' conversation with Andrew, says it would take 200 denarii just to give everybody a bite. A denarii is one day's pay. So they're saying it would take 200 days of uh, salary to just give everybody a snack. So you're talking to feed everybody till they're full, several years' salary to feed everybody until they're full. So Jesus takes what they have, and it says uh, also that Jesus knew what was going on in verse six. He said he said this to test him because he himself knew what he was intending to do. So Jesus knows what's up. He has foresight. He knows what's about to happen, but he's testing Philip. He wants to know where is Philip's faith? What kind of faith does Philip have? They take the five loaves and the two fish from the boy. He offers them up. So there, again, we have a participant, right? This boy, he's not the one that provides the supernatural power, but he is the one that provides the natural means by which this miracle takes place. He gives them to Jesus, Jesus blesses them, and then they begin to distribute. Who's doing the distributing? The disciples. So here we go, another participant, right? Now the disciples are participating. Again, they're not the source of the power, but they're participating in Jesus' display of power. Well, they end up feeding everybody. Everybody's full. In fact, not only is everybody full, but there's leftovers. It says in verse 12, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. I love this about Jesus, that the guy can make food out of thin air, but he doesn't want to waste anything. I mean, he's just so intentional and thoughtful about everything that he does. It's, he's not afraid of like, well, make sure you grab that food so we have leftovers because we don't know what we're going to have on our next, you know, tomorrow. He can make food out of thin air, but what he doesn't want is for things to get lost. He's, he's thoughtful and intentional, and he's considering everything that he's doing. There's 12 left, uh, leftover baskets full. So the result, again, this is a sign and a wonder, is that in verse 14 it says that the crowd dis- determined this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. So here we continue with these signs and wonders helping people understand Jesus' identity. It says in John chapter 3, I think it's verse 2, Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, there's no way that anyone could do the miracles you're doing if God wasn't with them. And so that's the conclusion that people are coming to. Miracles and signs and wonders at this point and still today have this really sharp cutting effect on people because when they see something miraculous, they're forced to make a decision. They're forced to, you gotta pick one side or the other. A miracle takes place, you have to decide, is that real or is that fake? And if that was real, who was the cause of it? What brought this into being? Was this a real miracle? Was this a false miracle? Who is the source? So it's a dividing line. And to this day, people divide over miracles and supernatural activity because they're not sure what to make of it. Some people loved Jesus for the miracles that he did. Other people hated Jesus for the miracles that he did. Let's continue to the very next story. We're going to stay in John chapter 6. This is the story of Jesus walking on water. Now, let's look at the pattern here. He's turned water into wine. Can't repeat that in a science lab, right? He's turned enough food for a little boy into enough food for 15,000 people. Can't repeat that in a science lab, right? Now he's about to walk on water. Unless you have a large freezer, you can't repeat that in a science lab, right? He's walking on liquid water. This, is an, this does not take place in Antarctica. 
So, so look, he's, he is superseding nature in every story. He has not healed a sick person yet or cast a demon out. This is just him showing that he supersedes the natural order, right? Even like, like other stories where he calms storms. This is what he does. He supersedes the natural order because his ministry is supernatural. So this is uh, John 6. This story is also found in Mark 6 and Matthew 14. We're going to use those stories to help us fill in some of the gaps here. But in John chapter 6, starting in verse 15, Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. And after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea began to be stirred up because, of a, because a strong wind was blowing. Then when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. So they were willing to receive him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Let's stop right there. If you can throw this map up for me, John Eric, this is a map of... Sea of Galilee today, okay? It says in the passage that they're in the town of Tiberias. Tiberias still exists, actually. And I don't know if you can, how well you can see this, but in the bo- see this line that I have going across the Sea of Galilee? The bottom line uh, is Tiberias. It's still called Tiberias. That's where they got in their boat, and they sailed north, if you follow that line, to Capernaum, which is at the top. Got it? That's their route. It, the Sea of Galilee looks the same today as it did back then. And those two towns still exist. That is a six-mile trip. It says that they are now three to four miles into it. So where does that put them? Pretty much smack in the middle, right? I mean, maybe they're two-thirds of the way. But they're pretty far away from shore. And what do they see while they're out there? Well, first of all, the wind's picking up. There are mountains in the north here that the the wind comes down off the mountains. So the wind would have been going against them, would have been pushing on them. This is not the same story of when he calms the storm. So we don't know how violent it is, but they're certainly rowing against the wind. But they see someone's walking on the water. And their response is that they get scared. I would be scared too. You know, if you read the Talmud, which is a Jewish commentary, it's not, the, it's not in the Bible, it's, it's Jewish commentary on the Old Testament. They believed that evil spirits came out at night and lived near water. These Jewish, Jewish people grew up believing evil spirits came out at night and lived near water. Now they're in the middle of the ocean, middle of the Sea of Galilee, at night, and it actually says in Mark 6 and Matthew, not only are they afraid, they say it's a ghost. Or in Greek, it's a phantom. They, and Jesus says, no, it's me. <laughs> it's me. I mean, their worldview was, oh no, this is not good. And we find out in Matthew, it's not in the story in John, but in Matthew, Jesus says, it is I. And Matt, uh, Peter says, if it's really you, Lord, tell me to come out and walk to you. And Peter gets out of the boat and actually starts walking toward Jesus. So now Peter, our participant, is participating in the miracle by walking on water himself. So this is not just something that Jesus did, it's something that Peter also did. 
Now we read from the story in Matthew that the, the wind kicks up a little bit and Peter starts to get afraid and he starts to sink and Jesus scoops him up and brings him into the boat. But this story is a, an incredible story of Jesus' power over the created order, over nature. He supersedes and there are participants, the people on the boat, Peter as he participates. They're terrified at this entire thing and then look what it says in verse 21. This is like an often missed detail. It says, immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. That's miracle 1A. Not only has Jesus walked on water, but as soon as he gets in the boat, they fast forward to the last two miles, two, three miles of this trip, and they're in Capernaum all of a sudden. Immediately, it says. So not only does he walk on water, but he, there's this there's a weird concept in the Bible, and I don't know too much about it. Spiritual transport, it's called. It's the idea that Jesus gets in this boat and all of a sudden immediately it's at the other end. It's the idea that in Acts chapter, I think it's chapter seven, this man named Philip is preaching the gospel to this Ethiopian person and then uh, all of a sudden he is taken up and he lands in another town, Azotus. It's Elijah getting pulled up by his hair and dropped in another place. I mean, it happens every now and then in the Bible, these like spiritual transport stories, and I don't know exactly what it's about um, or how it works. I do know this, every time that it happens in the Bible, every time that someone zooms from one place to the other, there's always a man-made mode of transportation present in the story. It's like God is contrasting how mankind travels with how he can do it. And so whether it's a, you know, the chariot that Elijah has or, uh, you know, the boat here in this story or Philip preaching to the Ethiopian eunuch who's in a chariot. There's always a man-made mode of transportation involved in the story. And God, it's like God is saying, like, that's cute. Watch this. This is the last story that I want to look at here. This story is a little bit different because this is a story of divine healing. Uh, so far... I have tried to categorize some of the works of Jesus this way. We spent a whole week talking about Jesus healing the sick, and I just treated all the healing miracles one way. Then we did another week on Jesus casting out demons, and then today I'm trying to do the stuff that's neither healing nor casting out demons. So we've done turning water into wine, walking on water. This, so healing is a subcategory of miracle because it still supersedes the natural law. It still supersedes the natural order, right? But I wanted to include this in here because I think this actually, this story in its context help us understand how Jesus lived a life of miracles. This is John chapter five, starting in verse uh, two. There is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos, in these lay a multitude of, of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after, stirring up, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease in which he was afflicted. A man was there who had been ill for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? 
The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no, no, men, no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Let me pause right there and explain what's going on in the story. So Jesus goes to this pool of Bethesda. This Bethesda pool was like a mineral pool. My hometown is, is built over mineral springs, and people used to go there in the 1800s to sit in these hot baths of mineral water to like soothe their ailments. That's kind of like what's going on here. Uh, they would get into this pool, and the, what they thought, the idea they had in mind was every now and then an angel would come and kick up the water, and when you saw the ripples, which was actually in, re in reality probably just the mineral springs popping up from underneath, when they saw that, they thought, get in, and the first person in gets healed. This guy's been there, he's been sick for 38 years. We don't know how old he is, but he's been ill for 38 years, and he's almost making excuses at this point. Well, no one's here to put me into the water. Well, then why are you there? Jesus says to him, do you want to get well? He has no, the man has no concept that Jesus is who Jesus is. The man has no concept that Jesus is going to help him. He says, well, no one's here to put me in the water. He could have at least said, could you put me in the water? It's almost like he's accepted his illness as his identity, and he's cool with it. But why are you here then? If you have no one to put you in the water, then what are you doing here? Now, it says there is a multitude of them here. It says in verse three, in these lay a multitude of those who are sick, blind, lame, and withered. That's gonna be important in a moment, but let me pick back up in verse nine. After Jesus says, get up, pick up your pallet and walk, immediately the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. He doesn't seem to display any faith or ask for anything. Now it was the Sabbath on that day, so the Jews were trying, or were saying to the man who was cured, it's the Sabbath, and it's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. Uh, missing the obvious. But he answered them, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your pallet and walk. And they asked him, who is the man who said to you, pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was. For Je he didn't even know who healed him. For Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. That gives us a little insight into maybe what caused this man's illness. Verse 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews are persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. Let me pause right there for a moment. Now, Jesus tells this man, take up your pallet and walk. And I guess to his credit, the guy does it. He obeys. He doesn't put up an argument. He gets up and walks and all of a sudden he's able to walk. He doesn't know it's Jesus. He doesn't know who's healed him. Just some person, right? The religious leaders, they see this and they're really not impressed or happy because now this guy's carrying his mat on the Sabbath. You're not allowed to carry stuff on the Sabbath. Dude, what are you doing? Carrying stuff on the Sabbath and he, they don't seem to care at all that he used to not be able to walk. They're caught up on the wrong thing. This, is, this happens sometimes when we, I had an experience once where I was sharing with someone a miraculous healing where a little child was healed of a physical illness and when I shared with them the story, their response was, that sounds creepy. 
And I thought, man, you are really missing the mark. Talk about a child who wasn't able to walk or you know, couldn't use their limbs as healed and you, you're just creeped out by it. You're, it's hard for me to believe you're a follower of Jesus if that's your attitude and your response to a miraculous work. So they're totally focused on the wrong thing here, right? I mean, that is the way religious people behave and the way religion works. You just get caught up in the nonsense. Oh, you violated this technicality. Instead of looking right in front of your eyes, the person who couldn't walk can walk now. Well, that didn't go the way I thought it should go. It doesn't always go the way you think it should go, right? So uh, that's probably, I should do that a whole nother Sunday, but they totally get caught up in the wrong thing. So they don't give God glory. They're not impressed. They're offended at a miracle. Religious people are offended at a miracle, Well, Jesus says in verse 17, my father is working until now and I myself am working and I'm going to continue reading because this is going to help us understand how Jesus did miracles. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, truly, truly, I say to you, and this is the key right here. The son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, these things the son also does in like manner. For the father loves the son and shows him all things that he himself is doing, and the father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. And then verse 30, I can do nothing of my own initiative. This is Jesus saying this. Even Jesus In his humility is saying, I can do nothing of my own initiative. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Jesus walks into this area where there's a pool. It says there are multitudes of people there. I don't know if that's dozens, hundreds, or thousands, but it's multitudes. Jesus steps over a sick person, walks past another sick person, and heals one out of multitudes. Why that guy? Why him? How many sick people did you walk by, Jesus? How many other sick people did you step over, Jesus, to heal this one guy? Jesus did not heal everyone, but everyone he prayed for was healed. Does that make sense? Jesus did not cast out every demon, but every demon he told to go left. Got it? I mean, we read in the book of Acts, Jesus, uh, Paul and the, the, sorry, not Paul, the disciples, Peter, comes across a man begging at the temple gate who's been begging there for years. Peter heals him. Jesus probably walked past that guy. If he's at the temple gate for years, Jesus probably walked past him how many times? but it's actually one of the disciples that heals him. How did Jesus know who to heal and how to heal them? Because he never did it the same way twice, it seems like. Sometimes he would take a little dirt, spit in it, make mud out of it, and put it on someone's eyes, and that's how he did it. Other times he spit in their mouth. Sometimes he just said a word. One time he prayed for a guy that was blind. He prayed for him once and he said, what do you see? And the guy said, I see trees walking around. And Jesus says, let's pray again. 
He prays the second time, but that's the only time he prays the second time. I mean, he never does it the same way twice. <clears throat> it's almost like Jesus is saying, this is not a formula. I do what I see the Father doing. And that's what he's saying here. This is how Jesus lived a life of miracles. How did Jesus know who in the multitude to heal? Because that's who the Father was ready to heal. Jesus only did what he saw the Father doing. He says in verse 17, my Father is working until now. Jesus had such great discernment that he was able to hear from God, okay, Jesus, this is who I'm healing today. And Jesus could just cut through everything and go to that one person. He, can, you know, he explains further, the son can do nothing of himself unless it's something he sees the father doing. Jesus knew that he could only perform miracles insofar as whatever the father wants to do, that's what I'm going to do. And Jesus batted 1,000 in discerning what God wanted to do at any given time. We don't do bat 1,000. Our discernment is flawed. Our discernment is imperfect. Why was Jesus' discernment so good? Well, we read a couple things. Number one, he does go off, we read this earlier today, he does go off by himself often. I mean, look at how Jesus is so free from distraction. There's a big group of people, and what does Jesus go? He goes up on the mountain to pray. He doesn't feel obligated to like go and like keep everyone happy. He goes up by himself to pray. What do those big group of people do? They want to make him king. They want to make him by force. Take him by force and force him to be king. What does he do? He hides, which is almost the opposite of what many people would do, right? He hides. Jesus has no selfish ambition in him. He's not looking to make a name for himself. He's not looking to be famous, even though he becomes famous. He, he's, he has no need to hype himself up. And because of that, his discernment is crystal clear. It's never clouded with ambition. It's never clouded with selfishness. It's never clouded with, oh, how do I build my brand? You know. And then it says in verse 30, as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. As I hear, I make a decision. As I hear from God, that's how I make decisions. As I hear, that's how I make choices. As I hear, that's how I determine what's good and what's bad. It's all based on discernment. He continues in the same verse. I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. It's humility. Jesus' discernment is perfect because his humility is perfect. The reason our discernment is hit or miss sometimes is because sometimes we want other stuff than what God wants. The Father's doing this, but we're like, yeah, but I want to do this. For whatever reason, whether it's our pride or our own lusts or maybe our, we think we have better judgment than God, and that voice, our own voice, competes with God's voice in our head, and we end up double-minded. And our discernment it can be hit or miss because, well, sometimes we get it right because we hear from God and then other times we hear from ourselves and we wonder why it didn't work all that way. So here's how Jesus was able to live a life of miracles. He lived in humility and discernment. I want to throw uh, one last quote up on the screen. This is from the Biblical Theology Study Bible. The son cannot act independently of the father. He can do only what he sees his father doing. They have distinct roles. The father initiates, sends, commands, 
commissions, grants, and the son responds, obeys, performs his father's will, and receives authority. The son is the father's agent, though much more than an agent. Whatever the father does, the son also does. This is why or because it is impossible for the son to act independently and set himself over against the father. When we have a training on how to pray for the sick, I want you to know that you're not going to come and learn a formula. Okay, make sure you pray these words, in the name of Jesus. When we have a training on how to cast out evil spirits, I want you to know you're not going to come get a formula. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, you must go. You're not going to get that. Here's what you're going to get. Training on how to discern and training on how to know what the Father is doing. What is the Father doing in this situation? What's God up to? That's what you have to hear. He's going to give you the methods. He's going to give you the words. He's going to give you the confidence and the courage and the boldness, all that stuff. But you're going to have to discern it. You sh- we shouldn't always be doing this, everything the same way. Every time you pray for healing, it's the same old prayer. Every time you pray against an evil spirit, it's the same old prayer. Like God approaches things differently. He has different stuff in mind. And just because it worked with this, in this experience doesn't mean it's going to work in that experience. I mean, the disciples ran into that problem. Other people, kings in the Old Testament ran into the, that problem. Moses ran into that problem. I struck, water, I struck the rock the first time and got water. Let me just do it again. And God said, you're not going to go to the promised land now. Because he just did what worked before. I don't know if that's what Jesus wanted them to learn, the disciples to learn, just do what worked before. I think he wanted them to learn, rely on the Father. Listen to the Father. Only do what you see the Father doing. Which is why there's this broad variety of what's going on here. So it's not about learning the key phrases and the key words and raising your voice and repeating a magical spell. That's witchcraft. This is about learning discernment. And how does your discernment improve? Through surrender. When your will is surrendered to God's will, when you don't want your will to happen, that's the clearest way to discernment is surrender your will to God's will. Then his voice will be louder than your voice. This is the way that this is going to work. It's going to work like playing music. When, uh, when music is done well, there are a lot of different dynamics in play. One of them is harmony. The people playing and singing need to do so in harmony. They need to harmonize, right? They also need to have rhythm. If you get you know, the, the drummers doing the drum beat to one song and the bass players doing the bass line to another song and the singers singing the lyrics from another song, it's just going to sound cacophonous, big word. It's going to sound like a mess, right? But if they're singing the same song in harmony, the same tempo, same rhythm, it sounds beautiful. It's actually what music is intended to be, right? Well, that's what a life of miracles is. It's harmonizing with God. It's being in rhythm with God. It's moving at the same tempo that God is moving. Sometimes God says, go do it, and we're like, "Uh, I don't know, and we move so slow. He's upbeat, and we're doing a slow jam of obedience, right? Other times, God's like, wait, and we're like, I'm ready. And he's like, well, you're 10 steps ahead of me. And we fall on our face. 
It comes down to discerning and being on the same rhythm, tempo, and harmonizing with God. And like I said, this comes through discernment, and discernment is clarified when we surrender our own will. So this is what I'd like to do. I want to lead us in kind of a prayer exercise of surrendering our will. We need God to clarify our our discernment, right? Some people actually have a spiritual gift of discernment, but every Christian has the ability to discern. To discern is just to discover God's will. So I want to lead us into a prayer, in a, through a prayer exercise. I'm going to ask you to repeat some stuff after me, but I'm going to give you enough time to personalize these things and make them your own if you would like. Jesus, you've given me the Holy Spirit. I want to know your will. I surrender my will to your will. I rebuke all the other voices. And at this point, there might be voice, you know, your, the voice of your anxiety, the voice of your fear, the voice of your control, the voice of your religious upbringing, the voice of your, you know, whatever. Jesus, I want your voice. I only want to do what the Father is doing. I want to give you just a minute. If there's anything you want to add to that prayer personally, go ahead and do that, and then I'm going to close this. Jesus, we don't want to get formulaic about this. We don't want to get dogmatic about this. There is not a prescription for the ABCs of how to heal the sick or the ABCs of how to cast out demons. It just seems like you just said, just do what the Father's doing. What God's up to in that moment, do that. So we need to discern your will, Lord. We don't want to just run in blindly try to force into a situation what's happened on other occasions. We also don't want to be fearful. When you're saying to do something, we want to do it. Give us good discernment, Lord. Help us to surrender your will. Not only do you supersede nature, you supersede us. You're above us. We're below you. Your will is perfect. Ours is flawed. So Lord, we surrender our will to you I ask Jesus that you would help us to have faith and discernment to obey and to surrender. I ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So as you go this week, find opportunities to fine-tune and prime and enhance your ability to discern. And I think as you get a sense of what the Father's doing, that'll give you 
opportunities to see more frequent answered prayer, more frequent, frequent miraculous work, more effective prayer for healing, evangelism, all that stuff. Thank you for listening to True Vine's Sermon of the Week. This podcast and an archive of previous episodes can be found at blessphiladelphia.com.